Okay, good. Um, so we're going to continue our study tonight in uh, the unseen, uh, studying the unseen realm and just talking about things that are unseen. Remember, we started this series back when I first got here. All we're seeking to do really is to understand who God is and how the scriptures have revealed uh, who God is. And so we started off at the very beginning, way back a year ago, um, with looking into the Bible itself and, and understanding that the Bible that we have in front of us is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word that he has given to us through the hands of men and, uh, and we can trust it, that it reveals to us rightly who God is. And then we naturally flowed out of that and into God the Father and just talked about all of the things that are God the Father and that he is, there are some attributes that he has that he does not share with us, and there are some attributes that he has that he does share with us, and we only have those because he has shared them with us, and he has revealed himself to us. And so we, uh, then we, we moved into, uh, we've now moved into the created order and the world that he created. There is, we, we live in a created world, and, and we talked about that in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and now we've started to touch a little bit on more specifics of that created world. And we're, so we're in kind of the unseen realm. Now, uh, I, I tried to preface this every time before we, we started this study. But you have to kind of think about this as a very, not only is it a complex subject. And as we uncovered last time, as we started to talk about Satan, some things can get really cloudy and fuzzy and some things that we're not quite sure about. You remember when you were a kid and you had those little, well, maybe even when you were adult, but uh, you had those little pictures that were dots and they had little numbers and you would start at the one dot and you would draw a straight line to the next dot and you would keep going around. And then at the end, it would be like Abraham Lincoln or something like that. You know, you draw this picture. And if you notice about those little things, the, the further the dots are apart, the harder it is to draw a straight line from one dot to another. And so the closer they are together, it's very easy to draw the straight line around. When you get to some things in Scripture, when we're connecting dots between two passages, it's really what we're trying to do. We, on, on Sunday mornings, and, and on, whether it's small group or from behind the pulpit, what we're really looking at is one central passage, and we're trying to understand that passage for all that it has to teach us, and we're deducing from that a lot of, a lot of things. But on Wednesday night, we're, we're taking one topic, and we're seeing what the Bible says about that topic. And so sometimes the straight lines that we draw from passage to passage are very short. We, can, we just make little steps, and it's, it becomes very clear and very easy to understand what God is saying about himself or he's saying about the world that he's created. And then there's some topics, particularly the one that we've been studying the last few weeks, where the dots are a lot further apart. And so the lines that we're drawing between, they sort of get a little bit crooked and we're making some guesses in some cases. And we're saying, we, we think maybe this makes sense of the biblical text, but we're not sure. And so what that tells us is that there are some things that as we study that we kind of have to hold in an open hand. And we have to say, I think maybe this is how this is, but I'm not sure. There might be a better explanation for this, but this is probably the best one right now that I've found. And so that's kind of, we have to sort of take a humble approach to the scripture and say, I don't know everything about the text that's here. I'm trying to make the best assessment of the text that's in front of me. And so when it comes to stuff like this, a couple of weeks ago, we started with this study looking at 
the angelic world. And so just as a matter of review, that first little section that you've got there, we looked at angels. And by angels, what we said was angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. And that angels were created by God and have exercised some moral judgment. And we're not entirely sure what exactly that is. It's, obviously, it's, it's obvious that there was some event that took place in history past, some sort of angelic fall, and we, don't, we just don't have a whole lot of details about what that was and what it looked like and all the details of it at all. Uh, but it seems to be true that, that angels were created by God and have exercised some, some form of moral judgment. Um, that they, they serve, the angels serve to guard, protect, and serve the saints. We know that for sure. And then worship at and guard the throne of God. We saw that in, remember, um, in Isaiah 6, there is the seraphim and the cherubim that are around the throne of God. They seem to be guarding in some way and worshiping God, and that's how they serve. It, the Bible never calls them them angels, but there's some sort of angelic spiritual being, okay? So they're, they're guarding and uh, surrounding the throne of God. Um, but then there's also angels who are messengers. They come to us. They give to us messages. They serve us in some capacity. They're ministering spirits, he, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so they serve to, to guard, protect, and, and serve the saints in some way. Then last or two weeks ago, we talked about Satan. And things get a lot fuzzier when we start uh, even more fuzzy when we flip over to sort of the, the, the evil unseen realm. It gets a lot fuzzier because we have even fewer details really on that. Um, Satan has traditionally been referred to as the chief accuser. And we said that, that that word Satan is probably more of a title for an individual spiritual evil being than it is the, his proper name. Because the word Satan means accuser, and we know that that's his role. He accuses the brothers day and night, the book of Revelation tells us. And so we know that he's taken up the role as like a prosecuting attorney, as it were, accusing you day and night of sins and, and things like that before the Lord. And, um, but this figure, this chief accuser, has some authority over the world and the evil aspects of the spiritual realm. And, and, but we've entered into an area now for us, the, the sort of the age that we're growing up in, um, we're, we're children, if you will, of the Enlightenment and rationalism. And so what, what's happened now is that due to the, the pull, I guess, of the 18th and 19th century of, of rationalism and the Enlightenment, um, there arose this growing skepticism about biblical revelation and classical Christian truths. And so people now naturally begin to question all the things of Scripture, and so everything needs to be explained through a very rational lens. If it's not provable, testable, and, and whatever, it, it, it's not true. And so if there's something that we can't prove or that science can't answer, then we just basically say, well, we can't answer that right now. Science does, hasn't provided the evidence for us yet. Or, or science, we don't have the right equipment, as it were, to be able to test this particular thing. So when it comes to the unseen realm, that puts us really behind the eight ball to some degree, because all of the explanations that are laid out for us in Scripture of demons and angels and things that we cannot see, uh, they all have to be explained in some way. 
and they, they can't just be left to an unseen realm. And so you, you've got, um, the, we're kind of behind the eight ball, culturally speaking. It's, it's very hard to talk to the vast majority of the rest of the culture uh, about some of these things. Not only that, but when we get into some of the things of Scripture that are much more complex, some of which we'll see tonight, they look very strange to us. In fact, they look so strange that we're inclined not to believe them or to hold them at arm's length. And we'll, see some, we'll read some of those passages tonight. We'll read much more of them um, next week. But there's a lot of things like that. And that, that's p- part of the reason is because we naturally look at the world around us as, uh, as things that we can see, taste, touch, feel, hear, things that we can observe with our senses and that there are therefore testable. Um, does that make sense of the last just a few weeks, just to sum up some of the things that we've looked at the last few weeks? Now, um, any questions about that, even over the last couple of weeks, of things that uh, maybe were unclear or things that I could help on before we get started with, with the demonic The, jump into the rational world? Irrational, Irrational world, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it, it one, another thing that's sort of interesting about the world that we live in, too, is in, they're doing generational studies all the time, and they're coming out all the time, but generation, the generation that is now the millennials and Gen Z, which is just behind them, uh, the millennials would be born right about 1981 or so, um, and that would be all the way up to the, the current... Um, the, <laughs> They're some of the most superstitious people uh, that have been in recent generations. And so it is interesting that even though they're the least spiritual in the sense of they kind of uh, push away Christian truths, they, they are actually some of the most superstitious people um, that, that we've seen in, in recent generations. So it's fascinating that there's still this, uh, this appeal to some sort of spiritual force and things like that, that that sort of govern things. So um, now when we look at demons, we're, we're going to look at just the origin, just the origin, how, how demons came about, and then, um, then we'll look at um, their current role in society, what, what they do and what the Bible tells us that they, what function they, they serve. Now while attesting to the, the reality, Scripture does point to the reality of demons, but Scripture is largely silent about the origin of demons, about where they actually came from. And I know that will initially come as probably a little bit of a shock to most people because I think we all grew up hearing where demons came from, didn't we? I, think it, I mean, if you grew up in the church or you grew up in a Christian household maybe, you probably had some sort of um, teaching at least maybe, church, on this is where demons came from, but as you start digging through scripture, it's just very little in terms of actually talking about demonic origins. And so that's difficult. That, that proves difficult for us as we try to say, well, where'd they come from? Uh, for sure. What does the scriptures tell us they came from? There's two main theories that have been set forth in Christian history. There's two main theories that have been, have been put out there. And the first one you're going to be really familiar with and I think is probably going to be what you always heard growing up. The second one is going to be a lot less familiar. A lot less familiar. I would say, may, I would venture to guess, you've probably never heard it before, ever. So we'll, we'll deal with the first one first and then I've got some, 
some precursors before we get to the second theory, okay? So just bear with me. Um, so most uh, in this theory, in this first theory, affirm that demons are part of the multitude of angels that fell with Lucifer's rebellion. Um, so we talked about a couple of weeks ago how it seems that in Scripture, Satan had some sort of a um, fall, a sinful departure from God in some capacity and became uh, perhaps an accuser, tormentor, took on that role at some point. And again, we talked about a couple of weeks ago how just little there is in Scripture to even tell us about that. We really, even from the opening pages of Scripture, just see that he's there on the scene and this is the role he has. Um, and so it seems that in this, in this first theory, make, trying to make sense of some of the texts of Scripture that we have with us, there's, there's Lucifer's rebellion. He kind of departs from the Lord, falls away from the Lord, sins against the Lord in some way, uh, makes a sinful choice, as it were, and a multitude of angels go with him, takes, takes a lot with him. And there's a couple of things that sort of point in this direction. They don't tell us that, but they just point in this direction. The first scripture passage you've got there, and you, you should have an attachment, a very small print of, <laughs> of <laughs> scripture over there. Sorry if it's too small. Try to fit it on just a front and a back. Um, but Matthew 25, 41, and then uh, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Um, so somebody read the first, the Matthew, and then somebody else read the Revelation. All right, somebody read Revelation 12, 7 to 9. The things that point in that direction are these references to the devil and his angels. So we know that, that the devil, we talked about a couple weeks ago, is going to be a created being, created by God. The angels, therefore, that would be his are going to be created as well. All of these are part of the created order. But somehow he runs them, controls them, runs the show, as it were. So it seems like they're part and parcel of his deeds. They kind of went with him. All right, in some capacity. And there's not a ton else <laughs> that would point in that direction except references like these, the devil and his angels. It would seem that he kind of runs this sort of band. And one thing I do want to say about this scripture, the scripture passages over here, there is one passage that's on here that's not a scripture passage. And I want to point it out to you because here's the reason why. I don't want you coming back to this in like a year. Let's say, for instance, you pull this out of a filing cabinet somewhere, or maybe you just got it thrown in your car, and you pull it out, and you look at the scripture, these scripture references, and you see 1 Enoch 10, 11 through 14, and that like I'm trying to pass off something that's not scripture to you as scripture. That's not true. Um, there's a, there's, that reference is actually kind of important, and I'll explain it in a little bit, but you might just want to notate this is not scripture. This is, this is Jewish literature, so you can just... That way, if you ever go back to this, you know, I told you it was Jewish literature. That's not scripture, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I, I wanted to say that before I forgot. Um, so there's these pointers that say that, you know, there's these angels that, that follow with him. So as angels, this, the next line here, as angels 
these were created perfect, but as individuals, they were able to exercise some sort of spiritual choice, it seems, and were able to go with Satan in some capacity and, and fall with him. Uh, having known the glory and perfection of God, they joined Satan in a deliberate rebellion against their creator. So again, this is the first theory of how we connect these dots of Scripture that there seem to be these angels that go with Satan, that they, um, they joined in this deliberate rebellion against the Lord. Now, some powerful and evil angels have been sentenced to chains or maybe, it, maybe it's a pit, we're not sure, and await judgment. And while others apparently have access to the earth, as does Satan himself. So what seems apparent is that there's some powerful and evil angels that have been sentenced to uh, some sort of binding, as it were, and await judgment, while others, there's other demonic forces that have the ability to roam and have access to the earth, as does Satan himself. They can sort of move about at least somewhat freely, I guess. And part of what points us in that direction are these next set of passages. So we're going to read through these. Second uh, Peter 2, 4. Somebody take that. And then Jude 6. And then we'll, I'll read the Revelation passages. But Second Peter 2, 4. And then Jude 6. Who wants to take Second Peter? All right. Now Jude 6. All right, now we're going to talk more about these passages next week, but suffice it to say that, that these verses are widely debated as to what exactly they're referring to. And we're not entirely sure, but it seems apparent that what Jude and Peter are pointing to are both the same thing, where there are some angels that the Lord has locked away in the dungeon and have just, they've, he's sort of kept in chains until the great day of judgment. But at the same time, there, are, there do seem to be uh, demonic forces roaming around. We see that in Acts, all over the book of Acts. There's demons running around possessing everybody, it seems like. And you know, one's pestering Paul, and he turns around and casts a demon out in Philippi. And, and it's just many people that are possessed by demons, and also in Jesus' ministry as well. And so it's not just before Jesus, it's not just during Jesus, it's also in the church age as well. There's demons running around as well. But then Peter and Jude both point to some angels that were not spared, they were kept in gloomy darkness until the judgment. And both of them seem to be pointing in that direction. Now you also have a few passages in Revelation uh, chapter 9. So uh, look at verses 1 to 2 there. He says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened and the smoke, uh, from, uh, and, and with the smoke from the shaft. Um, then he says in 9.11, they, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, 
He is Apollyon. Eleven uh, seven. he says, and, and when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And then Revelation 22 and 7, it says, And he seized the dragon, that serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So there, there seems to be this, um, the point is that there seems to be this sort of spiritual prison of sorts that where he has kept at least some and that they will be released at some point for some form of judgment. Now, this is not a class on Revelation, or we're not talking through Revelation right now, so we're not going to get into a lot of those things tonight. But um, as we look at that, it seems to be there, they may be pointing to something similar, if not the same thing, that there is some sort of prison that's held for um, some forces of, of darkness and that they've been kept there until a, a judgment day. Now, when you hear that, for, especially for those of you that grew up in the church or at least have been around the church for a while, maybe not Emmanuel, but, but in, in the Christian church, does that sound like a lot of what you've heard growing up as far as the origin of demons? The backstory? Blake, yes. Other people, yes. Seem to be. Are there any other things that you've, you've heard? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Frank, Frank Peretti is a is an author who writes a lot of uh, un, of fiction of the unseen realm kind of kind of deal and scare the blazes out of you when you're a kid and you read that. <laughs> yeah. There's not a reason that I'm not referencing Ezekiel 28. No. Do you want to read it for us? Yeah, um, well, we talked about that last week uh, with, uh, not last week, two weeks ago, uh, with the fall of Satan, that both is the Ezekiel 28 passage and the Isaiah 14 passage, one's talking about Babylon, another's talking about Tyre, and that's where there is some confusion as to what exactly is going on in those scenes. Um, he, it, it seems clear that in the, at least the context of the passage itself, he's referencing the king of Babylon. So let's take Isaiah 14. That one's a lot more off the top of my head uh, than the other. What seems to be happening in that passage is here's the king of Babylon, and he's, he's uh, this mighty, strong king. And what it seems to be communicated in that passage is that he's going to die, and he's going to go down to the realm of the dead and all of these countries that he has conquered and people that he's killed are going to take up a taunt against him, like, ha-ha, look at what's happened to you, right? You, you've, you were mighty, and you were strong, and you were high, and you were powerful, and you have sunken now down to the depths. You're dead like the rest of us. You're, you're nothing just like the rest of us. And, but what, what's, what we also think, is, as far as church history goes, is, is a lot of people have taken that passage and said that just like he is the highest king of earth, of the seen realm, that is a mirror image of the highest king of the unseen realm, meaning that Satan himself had a similar fate as the king of Babylon, or perhaps will have a similar fate as the king of Babylon, so they mirror one another. And we see this again in Ezekiel 28, where the king of Tyre, I believe it is, isn't it Tyre? Um, has, I mean, a very similar passage where he too has fallen and it seems that 
that, that both of those mighty kings of the earth have fallen in the same way that the mighty kings of the spiritual realm, in this case, these angels, or perhaps Satan himself, has fallen as, as well. And taken with him a kingdom of people that had followed, followed him, or in Satan's sense, a, a, a realm of angels that had followed after him. Um, we see this again in, I think it's the book of Luke, if I remember right, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they come back to him, and the, the 70 have gone out, and they've gone, and they've, uh, they've, they're basically kind of promoting that Jesus is coming. He's, a, he's sort of a traveling evangelist, as it were, and some of his disciples have gone ahead of him and have done miracles and have preached the coming kingdom before him, sort of warming them up for what Jesus is about to do as he comes in. And they come back and they report to Jesus, hey, demons are obeying us in your name. And he tells them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And he seems to give a similar, just a very brief, but it seems to be a very similar reference back to Isaiah 14, where this similar picture is. And that's where church history has connected those two dots and has said that this in Isaiah 14 and this in Ezekiel 28 are probably referencing in some way Satan himself because look at what we have here in Luke where Jesus is referencing that. Does that make sense? Those are the connections. And so um, this gets into some of the things that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit next week in terms of how, what responsibility these demonic powers or Satan himself have over uh, countries and regions um, and, and things like that that we have a little bit of evidence for in Scripture as well. But that seems to be where, that's, where that came from. And that's entirely, that's entirely possible, but you can see how slender that is to make a ton of really hard conclusions on. Does that make sense? Questions about that? Okay. Um, all right, now for the second theory. I want to preface this. <laughs> but, um, this is where the dots get a lot further apart. And uh, the two theories, the, the, the formulation of both of these theories, you can, you can really tell as you survey church history. One of them, the first one that we talked about, comes about largely in the church era. You, you hear the, the early church talking about this idea hear a lot of the early church fathers talking about this idea that multiple multitude of angels falling with Satan and that kind of thing. The second theory comes a lot from Jewish history. So it's the church looking back at how the Jews understood demonic forces and have translated that now into the church age. So a lot of what we're going to talk about, most of it comes from the Jewish understanding of the demonic realm or the unseen realm and, the, and how the church has now kind of taken that and sort of just said, we think this is actually right and true. And so there's some church fathers, Justin Martyr and some others early on that pick up this idea and, and really promote this second theory. Um, so the Jewish apocalyptic book of First Enoch states that demons are the unnatural offspring of angels and pre-flood women. Okay? Process that for just a second. The Jewish apocalyptic book of 1st Enoch states that demons are the unnatural offspring of angels, which are referred to as the sons of God, 
and pre-flood women, which are referred to as the daughters of men. Bear with me. Um, We're going to read two passages. One is not from Scripture. I want to clarify that. We've got it on the recording. So uh, (laughs) not from Scripture. It's in 1 Enoch. But the second one is from Scripture. It's from Genesis 6, 2 to 4. And I just want you to look at the way the two overlap. Now, 1 Enoch has a lot of this kind of thing in it. Okay? A ton. Enough to sort of just make you nauseous, I think, <laughs> to some degree. But First Enoch 10, 11 to 14, I'll read that. Again, this is not Scripture. Uh, and the word, uh, sorry, and the Lord said unto Michael, that is Michael the archangel, go bind some Jaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another, and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for 70 generations into the valleys of the earth. There's the the chains of gloomy darkness we're looking at again. Till the day of their judgment and of their consummation. Till the judgment that is forever and ever consummated. In those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined forever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations. Okay, so Simjaza is the reference there. The binding of Simjaza is a uh, reference to an angel in the book of Enoch. So uh, an angel that has chosen to do this. And the, what Enoch points out is that these um, angels have bound themselves to women. They've defiled themselves with, with women in all their uncleanness. And this is leading up to, uh, he says, the, the flood. Now, the reason that I've got that in there is not because uh, it's Scripture or I think that we should hold it as in, uh, authoritative or inerrant or infallible, but because it was written in 300 B.C. So that's significant because it's old, all right? It's really old. And what it shows you is how the Jews are thinking in that day and age. How they're interpreting the time leading up to the flood. Do you remember Enoch? Who was Enoch? Father of Methuselah? Who was the father of whom? Well, maybe he was the great-grandfather. Was it? Yeah, and then Noah, right? So he, he was, he's in the line of Noah, great, great, I can't remember how many greats, grandfather, and this is not written by him. He, first, you know, it's not written by him, but it takes after his name, and the whole thing is leading up to the thing that, that causes the flood. Well, if the Jews are in 300 BC are, 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 are saying this about what's the events leading up to the flood, do they have a better grasp on an interpretation of Genesis 6 one to four, then we might. Let's read Genesis 6, two to four, and see what he says. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim 
were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. All right. So this theory would surmise that the right way to interpret that passage in Genesis 6 is that the sons of God would have been some sort of angelic being. That they uh, came down to earth and in some way took on the form of men. They had sexual relations with women and the birth was these mighty men who were of renown. The term that is used there, the Nephilim, you see that term? And it literally means giants. And it's left untranslated in the English, in most English texts because we don't know what to do with it other than to call it giants. They were giants. And so it seems like at least in 300 B.C., the Jews are interpreting that passage in Genesis to be this, that angels came down and, and did this. So the theology, this is the next line here, the theology, the next bullet point, assumes that fallen angels had, or perhaps maybe they could assume, physical form similar to a man and therefore could cohabitate with women. Um, the offspring of these unions produced the Nephilim, apparently beings of extraordinary size and strength. Now, here's where we get to demons, okay? They produced... Any blanks missing? Do I need to go back? Any blanks? Okay. Um, okay, now where do the demons come from? All right. This is where, it explain, where the theory kind of goes a little bit further. When their bodies were destroyed in the flood, so this is the bodies of the Nephilim, these giants that are born, when their bodies are destroyed in the flood, the Nephilim became earthbound spirits. The disembodied spirits of the Nephilim being eternal continue their influence in part by inhabiting human beings and animals. All right. Yes. Yeah. You want me to explain it? Uh, numbers 11, is it uh, 1133, I think, maybe? Yes. Okay. Um, the spies go into the land, and they, they come back, and they report. It's a bad report, and they say, the people that are in there are, we look like grasshoppers compared to them. They're giants. They're the Nephilim. And um, this part is part of what leads to the taking another lap around the desert for 40 years. Um, it, I, I think, if I'm reading that passage right, I think that they are exaggerating. And they're not. I don't know if saying not telling the truth or they believe we're going to be whipped by them. Look how big these guys are. And the reference that they give is to the Nephilim in Genesis 6. But it seems as though most everybody is interpreting that to be just a lie or an exaggeration and a reference point. But it would, it would also seem that in the flood, that wiped out everybody. Uh, wiped out everybody. But Noah's family, obviously. Noah and his, his kids and their wives. I don't, you know, I don't remember. 
Yeah, so th- this, is another, this is another response. So if you're looking at the first theory, if that's the theory that you're probably most familiar with, obviously you, you, that's probably the one you're most familiar with. The second theory coming out of Jewish history is going to be a little bit not only foreign to you, but probably some of the first responses that you're going to think of is like, okay, well, Jesus says, because the, the, there's a question posed to him by the Sadducees, well, okay, a woman marries somebody and she has no kids and then she, her husband dies and she marries the next guy and then that husband dies and she marries the next guy, next guy, next guy. She has seven husbands and then so whose husband will she be when she, when she dies and she goes into eternity? And Jesus says, you will neither marry nor be given in marriage. You'll be like angels. The response that people that would take that second theory would say, well, he doesn't say they're asexual beings. He just says that they're not married and they're not given in marriage, meaning they don't have sex. And so um, the response would be something like, it, it doesn't say in Scripture that they're, that they're non-sexual. The other thing that would, would seem to be kind of, uh, it maybe lend itself to their, some, some credibility to that theory, is that in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got these two angels that come down, and they go to Lot, and they're taken into his home, and the men of the city see them, and what do they want to do with these angels? They want to, they want to have sexual relations with them. And so, um, now they don't, obviously, but, but there's still that, they took on at least enough form of a human that they, they very much appeared to be in human form. And so, um, again, the dots are far apart here, and we're, we're, we're simply going, what does that mean in Genesis 6, 1 to 4, and does it relate to the Second Peter passage and the Jude passage? Remember those? Is that what's happening here? It seems like in Jewish history in 300 BC, that's how they interpreted Genesis 6. And it seems like that's carrying over into the church age. And Peter and Jude are both interpreting Genesis 6 that way. Um, so obviously there's, there's some things we'll cover next week. We'll talk more about that passage next week. But. Right. So I don't know how I have a problem saying this is Jewish history. There would be some Jews who would come up with I, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that that interpretation of that passage is old. It's an, it's not something that's just kind of you know kicked up all of a sudden. It's new. That's been around for a long time, and potentially that has some sort of sway on how we look at First Peter and Jude in terms of what they're saying. It, it, it might have influenced that that way. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so now if you think about that last point that we're looking at there, that the, the bodies were destroyed in the flood and the Nephilim became earthbound spirits, and so that, that's your, your demon. If you think about heaven and hell as being sort of the realm, the realm of the dead, okay, let's, let's just put that in sort of the realm of the dead, and there's the, the good side of the realm of the dead, which would be heaven, and then there's the bad side of the realm of the dead, which would be hell, um, those would be reserved as some form of a prejudgment judgment for humanity, but what are the Nephilim? They're not human, strictly speaking, correct? Um, so if that's the case, then what happens to them? This is how this theory kind of, this is how the dots end up being connected, right? Well, we have these spirits that torment us and possess people and possess pigs and run them off a cliff and all kinds of other things throughout the New Testament. What are they? And so the, the, what spawns up is maybe that explains some of the demonic activity that that's 
what's left over. Yeah, that's weird. I get it, right? That's, that's weird. Just wait till next week. It gets weirder. Some ideas as far as connecting some of these passages of Scripture. But the, here's the deal. I, w- I want you to keep this in mind. I don't want to just reject something because it sounds weird to us. Um, we really kind of need to look at the scriptural text and say, okay, does that make better sense of the text that's in front of us? Now, all of this, under, especially under point two, but all of it really, we hold a lot in an open hand because I'm not entirely sure exactly what exactly it's talking about here. And so there's some decent ideas as far as what's going on, but when I, when I look at the text, I don't want to just dismiss something because it sounds foreign. Because let's say this is true. This is not the strangest thing in the Bible. The strangest thing is in the Bible is the incarnation. That's the strangest thing in the Bible. That God becomes man. That is the strangest thing in the, in the Scriptures. That the Holy Spirit comes over Mary, that she conceives and she bears a son, and in that son is fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. That's the strangest thing in Scripture. Next to that, this is not that strange. <laughs> okay. Now, if I'm willing to accept the incarnation, then the strangeness of something shouldn't necessarily push me away. It should be really the biblical weight of the biblical evidence. And again, all of this I'm going to say, maybe, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly, maybe this does make more sense of those texts than, than others. Well, the, and this is the, the um, only, um, I mean, Genesis 6, 2, 4, I've never been able to find an explanation right. for that. This yeah. is the first explanation yeah. I've seen for that yeah. passage. We'll, we'll talk about, there's, there's two pre- predominant explanations for that passage that we'll talk about next week. That's one of them, and, and then there's another one, too. I just don't, I don't think that, that other, the other explanation makes as much sense of the text itself, but it could. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Any questions about that? Oh, that's strange. Maybe so. Yes. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's that's the idea. That's the the thought of it. Um, and that would seem to they're trying to reconcile Second Peter, Jude. They're they're going down into the pit. They're being sentenced to etern- eternal um, damnation, and they're being held there without being able to do any activity. But the dead spirits of the Nephilim perhaps roam the earth, and that. Yeah, uh, the first theory would say Satan and all his angels cast down, that is, the devil and his demons. That, 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 that. In terms of, in terms of, Yes. And, and, and there's some people in that theory that would say uh, that the, the reading of Genesis is the reading we just read, is, is that interpretation, that, that there were some in that fallen group of angels that did take wives for themselves. And, and then those are the ones that are condemned. Others would say, 
We don't know what Second Peter is talking about. It, this is probably it, but we don't know what, what relation it has. Yeah. 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 So um, the, those, those three passages, they're, they're difficult to wrestle with. They're, they're, very, they're very challenging, I think, in terms of another interpretation. It's, it's very, it becomes very difficult, I think. Yeah. Right, I'm not sure I understand what you're asking, though. Who, who's connecting? No, I'm saying, I'm saying that the idea of interpreting Genesis 6 that way seems to be a repetitive pattern in Jewish history that there are people that are interpreting it that way. And, uh, and it, it appears in a couple other texts as well, but it, but it, it, it seems to be a, a, a prevalent interpretation. When you read Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude, they seem to be saying a very, in fact, Jude even quotes First Enoch. So they seem to be referencing that understanding of the Genesis 6 passage. And so that, that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm, and again, it's, 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 a, it's a theory, it's the dot that they're connecting. The dots are, like you say, they're, they're far apart, 300 years apart. But it, it's possible that that's, that's what they're talking about. So, and that seems to be a, a pretty widely held. Now, and that, so that's picked up in the first century. Both of those viewpoints are picked up first, second, third century church where they're saying, uh, one, one group is saying, no, that's, that's not it. This is it. And the other group is saying, yes, that, that's, that's what happened. And so it, you, you have this sort of um, uh, a little bit of liberty in terms of interpretation there in, even in developing in the early first century. So... Um, all right, now just let's go through these. Uh, the role of now, whether, as far as those two theories go, um, there's probably some. There might, might even be a, a both and that, that's happening there in, to, in some degree. But uh, regardless of, of what what that is, the scripture do point to thing, roles that demons currently uh, perform here on earth that we are, are pretty sure about. Um, demons as angels are persons reflecting intelligence, will, and emotions. They are persons reflecting intelligence, will, and emotions. Uh, so somebody take 2 Corinthians 11, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 26. So there, Paul is talking about the cunning, the, the deception of, of Satan, his, uh, his schemes and his plans and uh, intellect, as it were. So 2 Timothy 2.26. All right, so... Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, so there is a plan, forethought, a, some sort of uh, desire to kind of set a trap. James 2.19. Let me take that. So there is some sort of cognitive uh, ability in the demons to even recognize and, and understand and, and think, as it were. Um, we've talked about uh, Revelation twelve seventeen. but I'll read it. The, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand in the sea. So there's, there's an anger, there's an emotion there that he's demonstrating. 
Um, so, and we would assume that the demons are likewise. They operate in a very similar capacity. Um, they can oppress and possess human beings and animals, cause sickness, mental anguish, masochism, and nakedness. They can oppress and possess human beings. We see Matthew 4.24 um, so his fame spread throughout, as Jesus they're talking about, so his frame, fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, they oppre- the, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Um, Matthew 8, let's go Matthew 9, 32, just for the sake of time. As they were going away, behold, demon, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So there's mutinous caused... Um, in, some, in some cases, there's seizures caused by uh, demonic oppression. 12, Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that, um, so that, the, man who spoke, uh, so that the man spoke and saw. Um, so you, ha- you have lots of different times where demons come upon an individual and cause certain kinds of things, whether it be just outright craziness or some sort of physical def- uh, defect, sort of like being, not being able to speak, not being able to see, um, seizures and things like this that happen to him. Um, so where are we at? Uh, demons can also give extraordinary powers to those they indwell, supernatural knowledge, fortune-telling, wild strength. Um, I want to read a couple of the Acts passages. So Acts 16, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl that was in Philippi who had a, a spirit of divination and, and brought her owners much gain and by fortune-telling. So she's telling people the future and, and providing her owners a lot of money, and Paul gets in a lot of trouble when he casts out the demon. Um, Matthew 19, uh, 6, this is probably my favorite story in all the Bible. The seven sons of Sceva, who are Jewish exorcists, they're in a house and they're casting out demons, and they say, in the name of uh, Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of her, and the demon answers them, which is never a good thing, and says, uh, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I've heard about, but who are you? And yeah, I can just, I don't know what happened next <laughs> after, I don't know what their response was, but I'm sure it was not a good one. And uh, then the demon, it says, and the man who was, who whom was the evil spirit, uh, leaped on them. The seven sons, seven people, one man, okay, one demon-possessed man, leapt, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What happened to their clothes? I mean, they were beaten off of them. I mean, uh, that's, that's just a, an astounding story, very crazy, just incredible story. That was Acts 19.16. Yep, it's on the back page of your scripture references, um, about close to probably a third of the way down. Um, so there, there's powers that are that are given to them. Demons promulgate deceptive doctrines. They promulgate deceptive doctrines. So First Timothy four one to three. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then it it goes on to say essentially the same thing. Um, Powerful demons can deceive nations. So we see Daniel 10, 13. 
the prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me for 21 days. We'll talk more about this next week probably, um, is this idea that there's demonic uh, presence over uh, in control or some way um, responsible for nations. And so the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this is Michael the archangel talking, withstood him. Uh, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I, w- I was left there with, uh, with the king of Persia. So this angel is coming to Daniel and saying, I was fighting uh, the, the, another angel that represents Persia, and Michael the archangel came to give me relief, and then I came to you. And so it's a very strange passage. It's hard to understand what's going on there, but um, it seems as though they can deceive entire nations. They represent nations. You see in Revelation 16, 13, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Later goes on to say that they go across the world making powerful signs and deceiving the kings and nations. Um, so uh, occasionally they are in some sense sent to do the will of God. We see in 1 Samuel 16, uh, 14 to 23, that there is a, a spirit that goes and torments Saul uh, as he's having battles with David, essentially. He goes and, and, and torments Saul. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Uh, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was giving me, given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming uh, conceited. So it, it seems as though that messenger of Satan... Well, he wants Paul to be conceited, we think, but he's doing the will of God who sent him to not make him conceited. So he's pestering him to, to humble him. So Satan formed... Uh, let, let's just be clear. Satan needs permission, okay? Just understand that. Satan needs permission. And there are, there are times where it seems very clear that he's doing the will of God, do this. Um, and, and that's what he, he does. Um, so... Uh, demons recognize and must obey Jesus Christ. They know they are condemned through the cross. We see Mark 1.24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 5.7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. It, it's very clear throughout the Gospels and really even throughout the rest of the scriptures that whatever these demonic spirits are, whatever their origin, they are submissive entirely to Jesus Christ and to the name of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we might speculate on some of these verses and not know exactly how to connect the dots, but some dots we do know for sure uh, that they submit to the name of Jesus Christ and only to his name. So... Um, I think that's a, we have to recognize that. If we don't see that, all of this is pointless, right? Go ahead, Shannon. Uh, just a quick question because I know sure. we're running late. But, that's okay. Um, on the um, fortune-telling um, stuff, so are some of these people who, who do read minds on television and stuff, are they really doing it but doing it through because of, of, of the devil? Because usually you think they're yeah. just... Like, like illusionists. Kind of, yeah. yeah, but are some of them, because you can sit there and go, wow, oh, how did they figure that out? Yeah. Are they doing it, but by I, the devil's power? 
I, I, would, I, would, I would put that in two different categories. I would say probably some of them, there may be some of them that really do have some sort of evil spirit and, and kind of power. I think most of them are lying and deceptive. Um, but I think both of those are under the deceit of Satan, right? doesn't matter if they actually have a power or if they're just deceiving people to think that they actually have a power. Both of those would be given the force of demonic power. They're intentionally deceiving people, lying to them, uh, tricking them, and that's straight from the pit of hell. I mean, honestly, yeah, especially with the way that they manipulate people and take their money and, and all kinds of other things. It's that's a deed of darkness for sure. So, yeah. Um, so there's there's a few questions that I think people normally ask, and so you can um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but can demons possess Christians? I think that's a normal question that a lot of people ask. Um, the term possess is not actually there in relation to demons in Scripture. And so it's, a, it's an interpretive decision that, that a lot of translators have made. But what is actually there is demonize, to demonize people. And there's, multi, there's varying levels, obviously, of demonization of people. And so we see in some cases, like the man in the cemetery who's cutting himself and he's breaking chains and he can't be arrested and all this kind of stuff that Jesus ends up healing. Um, there seems to be some, in some capacity, he sort of blacks out, for lack of a better way of saying it. Like, he, he, it's like not him, in other words, and he is almost under total control, it would seem, of demonic powers. And so that would be a, it seems like a really uh, intense level of, of, of what we would call possession. Whereas there also seems to be other people that are simply tormented, oppressed. Like Saul doesn't seem to be possessed, but oppressed by this demon, like uh, tormented and things like that. And, uh, and so when it comes to the question of Christian possession, we would say for the former, well, no. Uh, if Christ has possessed that person, it, it would not seem that they could, they could do that. As far as oppression, well, I think Paul is an evidence of, of the fact that you can be tormented or some level of, of oppressed or uh, poked at, for lack of a better way to say it, by, by demonic forces. In which case, it, it, um, it, it could cause a number of things, I suppose. Um, but that would seem to be, I think, the best way to reconcile several texts of Scripture. Um, are demons the cause of illnesses? Here again, I, I would say, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. And it's very difficult to tell the difference between the two. So you could have potentially a person who's schizophrenic and multiple personalities, and it's demon possession that this person is dealing with, maybe sometimes even clinically diagnosed as just having multiple personalities and needing a pill, but in reality, actually demon-possessed. And it's possible that there's somebody that um, has you know, schizophrenia, the same illness, but just has a lot of chemicals going on in the brain or whatever is the cause of that um, in, in the brain. Now, depending on where you're at, you go to Africa, and when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? You've heard this expression? Well, when Africa, m the medical community is not so much there, and so everything is demon possession. If you've got a cold, you better watch out because they're going to cast that demon out of you. <laughs> you just be careful. Um, but in America, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We've got the medical community, and so everything 
appears to be medical, and you diagnose it and you give it a pill. But that doesn't seem to be always the case either. So it takes a lot of discernment, I think, and it's not always, I think, a clear-cut um, thing as to which, which thing is going on there. Does that make sense? Makes sense and kind of doesn't make sense at the same time. Um, how do you, should you exercise a demon? Um, I can only go with what is kind of there in Scripture, and that is, one is the name of Jesus. Come out, <laughs> right? Um, by the name of Jesus, come out. The other is prayer. Uh, I think Jesus casts, or cast out a demon out of a, a boy that has um, epilepsy, seizures, that he points to as being caused by the demon. This is actually af- right after he comes off the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, I believe, is what it is. They come off the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got three disciples with him. The nine disciples are there, and they're trying to cast this demon out of this kid, and it won't come out. And the father is mad as a hornet because what they're doing to their kid, and he's, you know, he's seizing. And he comes up to Jesus, and, he, and Jesus is like, what's going on? And, and he says, your disciples are trying to cast this demon out of my, my boy. This, it's made him mute. It's made him paraly- or, uh, have epilepsy and seizures, and sometimes it tries to drown him in water and all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus cast the demon out, and the disciples ask, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And he says, this kind can only come out with prayer. And so it, it, it appears as though that there's some form of uh, oppression that really requires that prayerful consideration and, and um, really beseeching God to, to get rid of this, this demon. I think that's a lot of what I've experienced in Africa as well is some of that kind of stuff, epileptic type, type things. Um, I know that's, that's, it gets really fuzzy, doesn't it? It does. It's, it's very hard to make sense of some of these, these texts. Any questions in just the couple minutes that we have? No. Yes. So when they tried to deal with this demonic power, the demonic power said, you can't do anything to me because you're involved in pornography. You're seeing a woman's lust of life. You started whispering and saying, there's a problem. Yeah. They had to confess and get things right before they could deal with it. So it was, yeah. it was large power far greater than us to not rid of the problem. Right. And we have to, we have to live a holy life. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a subject that we don't often talk about. I think in the church, but it it's there in Scripture. Some things are there in Scripture, and it's up to us really to make try to make as much sense of it as we can. And so it does get hazy and blurry sometimes, and we're not quite sure what to do with these texts, and um, and it, it gets difficult. But I think we come back to that same central premise: is that that. Um, that in Christ, uh, we have no reason to fear. And so whether we have all of our theological ducks in an exact row on this kind of topic, um, encountering those things shouldn't make us afraid. Um, we should be able to approach it with you know, respect, but, but also with confidence, knowing that Christ is in control. Yeah. Let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I pray for the things that have been talked about tonight that... We can understand them for what they are, complex uh, and difficult 
for us to wrap our minds around and understand um, and to be held loosely in terms of our own interpretation of these particular texts. Lord, we humbly submit to you, trusting that you will give to us wisdom and discernment when it comes to matters like these, that uh, we can approach the scriptures with humility, knowing that we don't have it all figured out, and trusting that even though we don't have it all figured out, your power is made perfect in weakness, and we, uh, we confess that we are weak, and we know that you are strong, and so we trust in your strong name as we go out into the world around us, and maybe we encounter some things like this, and I pray that with confidence, with boldness, but always trusting in you without any pride, um, we are willing to engage in these kinds of situations if necessary. I uh, pray that you would give us the answers should such an occasion arise, um, that you would give us the responses, that you would give us the wisdom and the confidence to deal with them with the assurance of knowing that we are yours and nothing can take us out of your hand. And so we appeal to you as the Lord of all creation um, to continue to work in us, through us, um, to work to us and in work in spite of us in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.